My name's Nick. I'm the owner of Kevlar Joe's and I'm the roaster. I'm an Air Force Security Forces veteran, a dad to three wild boys, and a husband to my wife, Crystal, and a coffee enthusiast. From a family in a small town in Missouri, we started with the simple idea of crafting a perfectly bold cup of coffee. Inspired by wellness and countless pots of stale coffee while deployed, we wanted to craft a bold, clean, and smooth coffee. So we did. And we realized we wanted to share this coffee with our friends. Lord knows we could all use a good cup of coffee right about now. From the farm to your coffee cup, there's nothing like a good, well-crafted, and bold cup of coffee. No matter what time of the day, it's there to pick you up motivate you and relax you we hope you enjoy our coffee be bold be humble be kevlar and you can find kevlar joe's coffee company anytime you want at www.kevlarjoe.com and for listeners of the dig bible podcast use the code all caps dig 20 whenever you're checking out to get a 20 percent off discount enjoy This is Ryan Peterson, and you are listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. We should read our Bible as men digging for buried treasure. The Bible is the world's most popular enigma. Its secrets lost to cultures beneath the sands of time. Or is it? It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. God wants you to seek, to read his word, to to look for that knowledge. He wants you to do that. And the people at Nicaea, they like chopped out 80 books of the Bible. We need to bring those back. There's more bad guys in this thing than a Bruce Willis movie. Oh, yeah. Let's back it up here. I, I love the intro to the show because it's exactly right. There's these nuggets of gold in his word. You guys always sign the show. You, you gotta dig it. Dig it. Show us your nuggets. God, our creator, lies outside of time and space and matter. I feel like God's be like, hello, McFly. You ain't got it so far, then. There are secret societies think that they are the descendants of the giant. I mean, isn't is this exciting? I mean, you read it, it's like, wow. Nephrology round table. But these angels were taken to help immediately. Do not pass gold, do not collect $200. You're out of the game. Dirty hands means clean theology. Can you dig it? What's going on, all my local guys and gals and long distance pals? Welcome back. 2023, we're back. Yes, we are. I missed you guys. It's been, what, like a month since we recorded last? It's been a while, yeah. It has been a while. Busy, busy time off. Lots of happen, lots of action. So I'm, I'm excited to get back into it. I'm excited to see you guys again. Ben, I know you've read a lot of books, and you're ready to go. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're studied up. Yeah. 
I don't read. <laughs> Audible, baby. Audible. <laughs> Everybody have a good holiday. It was beautiful, man. It was good to be around family. Yeah, it was good. But I ain't going to lie, I missed it. I'm, I missed you guys. It is. This is our guy time. It is. You know, what we said yeah. with Ryan P- Peterson, you know, this is our he-man, woman-hater club time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it. Uh, well, we got a, a really good guest for you guys this week. But uh, before we jump into it, we're just going to go into prayer. Uh, who wants the first prayer of the, the new year? I'll take out that, that pleasure. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for giving us this space, this this place that we can study your word and share it with other people. Uh, thank you for giving us this outlet, and, and please help us reach. Even if that, just that one person that we bring closer to you, God, that's that's all we can ask for, and that's all we can hope on this on this journey you've put us on. Dear Lord, in your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, Steve, uh, you take the steering wheel on this one. I done had my Trey Smith. This is your Trey Smith. <laughs> Well, I am a big fan. Our, our illustrious guest today is none other than the, uh, the great Dr. Judd Burton. And actually, I have to say, Judd, the first time, first time I said to my dad, I said, listen, you got to listen to this guy, Judd Nelson. He is awesome. And my dad looked all over for you and couldn't find you anywhere until he comes back. And, and I had to uh, look back and say I said the wrong thing. But Judd... I am so happy you're here. You're author, explorer. Um, you've done so much. You are a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I love listening to you on Iron and Myth with those other guys, with uh, um, with Gilbert, Doug Van Dorn, and Gadawa. The, the stuff that you guys put out, the stuff that you put together with Aaron Judkins, uh, just some of the 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 greatest knowledge and the push forth of 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 God's you know work in this day and age when when we really are on the cusp of something something amazing happening as, as well as something crazy happening if you know what i mean so it's it's a pleasure to have you well i'm happy to be here thank you yeah well and i i warned you a little bit about this earlier and i i said we're gonna jump around a little bit and i'm sorry but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna exercise your brain a little bit today um okay and, and because we didn't really pick one set subject because I feel like there's too much to choose from me. Well, and you are, you are a wealth of knowledge. And, uh, and I know a lot of times on, on some of these individual questions, you could do a whole mini series, but what we're going to do is kind of, um, I guess, jump around a couple things. I know we have a few separate questions and a few different ideas. We want to bounce off you, but kind of, I love the fact, and you have, it's the, the, which you're and you're getting it started back up the school of remind me exactly the title of it again uh the institute of biblical anthropology yes and i cannot when is the when are you going to start doing classes again well the new uh the new platform is supposed <laughs> we keep we keep thinking of things to add to it so <laughs> the the new drop is supposed to be this coming week cer- certainly this month i think so me and my wife are looking forward to it. We both uh, both want to jump on there and take a few. So I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah. But a lot of the stuff that you dive into, uh, it, it, to me, is the amazing thing. Because so many people, 
you know, in our pop culture today, we, you know, and we've talked about a lot like the Marvel movies and some of the superheroes and things of that nature. But mm-hmm. one of the mm-hmm. biggest things in pop culture lately is, is vampires and werewolves. And you see that stuff everywhere and they glorify it. It's the same thing with Marvel movies. We're glorifying those demigods that, that, um, most likely existed in one form or another. So mm-hmm. when we talk about, um, werewolves i'm going to kind of give you the stage a little bit but i I, i'm really interested i know you've done a lot of stuff on vampires lately and i don't want to i don't want to beat a dead horse per se but i'd I'd like you Mm -hmm. to kind of go in maybe the the origin of where you believe uh uh, werewolves are from i've read the or i I should say i'm halfway through the sabine bearing gold um uh uh, vampire that that's you know what and i apologize i didn't see that you had an edited version of that i actually bought somebody else's Mm -hmm. so i have to apologize to you I take I take no offense, <laughs> but I'd like you to kind of start there and kind of tie this in biblically for us. Where where does this come from? Yeah, sure. Well, I don't think you can really under. I mean, there's many different levels that you can understand this topic on. One is the sort of mythological folkloric perspective, uh, where most academics just treat this as culturally valuable but that's the end of it there's no investment in the supernatural end of this um but that that truncates our understanding of reality in a very fundamental way particularly for people that subscribe to a supernatural worldview and more specifically for people who subscribe to the biblical worldview um to under to really understand, uh, and let's just let's go ahead and get this out of the way. Um, werewolf stories, uh, or, or were creature stories, anywhere you go around the world, are typically not. They're not love stories. In other words, there's there's no uh, you know, there's no bubblegum storyline to any of these encounters. They're bloody. They're gruesome. They're they're awful. They're not experiences that that you would knowingly walk into if you could altogether avoid that and so i think that uh i believe in my uh, the research that i've done over the years um which forms a lot of the subject matter of the preternatural morphology program that we're we're going to be promoting um I think in order to understand creatures like the vampire, the werewolf, uh, ghouls, revenants, um, the first witches, uh, in order to understand this sort of cabal of of the preternatural, in other words, there's it's preternatural because there's a natural and a supernatural element. And in order to understand this, we really have to take this back to the pre-flood world, and Genesis is very explicit about about a particular kind of monstrosity that existed in the pre-flood world, the Nephilim. And again, I, like you, I don't want to retread old tires here, so I won't <laughs> I won't rehash Genesis chapter six. I, I would wager that most of the audience is probably familiar with that narrative. Hmm. Um, We've beat but, that horse a few yeah. times. Yeah, he'd be a, we laid some straps on that rear end. <laughs> right, exactly. To, to, to beat a horse that is nigh dead. Um, the, the, the thing that's, that's, that really 
really clarifies the issue here is the commentary offered by a lot of apocryphal material, uh, specifically stuff like um, Enoch and the uh, works like the Book of Giants and uh, more obscure ones like the Genesis Apocryphon. I uh, think books like that that come from the apocryphal tradition and more specifically often the Dead Sea Scroll apocryphal tradition. Books that are theologically congruent with canon scripture but aren't canon scripture themselves are often referenced by authors in the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But Enoch is particularly useful because... Uh, it gives us a kind of window into the world before the flood, the antediluvian world. And uh, we get a, a, a culture sketch of what the, not just that these things were giants, uh, but we learn about, uh, we learn more about the pedigree that's referenced in, in Genesis chapter six, that they have angelic pedigree and human pedigree. And we also learned from Enoch that not only were there hominid Nephilim, but there were also these chimeric Nephilim uh, that uh, were a result of the Watchers, this group of fallen angels that landed on Mount Hermon. The result of this, this kind of genetic uh, resequencing and experimentation with the animal kingdom. And so there were, there were, these monstrosities that had different parts of animals and humans. Um, so if you look at the behavior, uh, the culture, if you will, of these, these things, uh, while reading Enoch, and there are certainly references to the, the kind of nefarious and wicked behavior that they engaged in in other apocryphal texts as well, um, they used up the resources of humanity uh they turned on humanity when they ran low and began to eat human flesh and consume blood and they even turned on one another in a war that was so terrible that it frightened their parents the watchers what does that look like is a big question that always keeps coming back to me if it terrified the watcher angels now if we fast forward a little bit to the judgment that god hands down on the watchers and the nephilim uh that enoch delivers enoch is sort of the um the judicial go-between uh in this story between god and delivering these the notices of these judgments almost like a um you know like a yeah, well, almost like a sheriff, you know, posting a, a notice on somebody's door that, hey, you wanted, you owe this, we're looking for you kind of a thing. Um, so what what Enoch relates to these, uh, the giants, the Nephilim in particular, and the, the, the Chimeric and the Hominid Nephilim is that, look, you've been judged, you're going to be destroyed in a huge deluge, and your spirits are going to wander the earth. They're going to be hungry and thirsty and never be satiated. Uh, you will desire to dwell in flesh uh, constantly. You'll hamper humanity uh, and you'll be unclean spirits upon the earth. And it's interesting that uh, there is a, a, an abundance of this phraseology 
in the New Testament, from the Gospels to the end of the New Testament, uh, in which the writers are using uh, uh, that very phrase in Greek, unclean spirit. Uh, so this, along with the, uh, the Second Temple period traditions, lays a pretty firm uh pretty firm origin for the lower orders of the demonic realm and that's the demon the demons themselves that they're actually the disembodied spirits of the nephilim you know there's there's really there's there's not a whole lot of gray area there linguistically uh when you're when you're looking at the words and phraseology that are used um and also the very behavior of the nephilim this behavior doesn't go away just because they're disembodied what they find in in the post-flood world uh, are means to culturally ensconce themselves across the globe uh, and to manifest as these different kinds of, of creatures uh, that always take uh, and never give back, whether that happens to be a revenant or a ghoul or a werewolf or a vampire uh, or what have you. And the whole taxonomy of of monsters and world culture, I believe that there's there's firm argumentation to support uh, that they're uh, the vampire, the werewolf, and their ilk uh, are amongst the spirits of the disembodied uh, disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. And you can even hone in, and you you ask about the werewolf, you can really hone in there. Um, and likely what you're looking at is the, the product of uh, the, this genetic resequencing uh, and, and combinations of human and animal DNA in the pre-flood world. Um, and if that's the case, it, it, makes, it also makes you wonder what kind of wolves they were they were using to do this with or well you know what other animals in the case of wolves uh in the in late prehistory there were uh, a species of of wolves known as dire wolves uh who were quite aggressive uh they were larger uh than the wolves that we have now uh wolves can get pretty big but we have to remember that there were megafauna on the earth in the late Pleistocene uh, that these watcher angels would have had access to. Uh, and so that that is a plausible explanation for the origin, in, to my mind, uh, taking into account the, the what we know about the environment at the time, the species of animals, factoring in the, the anthropological evidence that we have, the mythological traditions, the folkloric traditions, and this is something that Baring Gold, you know, talks about in his in his book. Actually, the first person that I ever read that linked uh, these spirits uh, of the Nephilim that were uh, uh, became later became the demons of the ancient world. Um, the first person that I ever heard or read rather linking these worlds together was Montague Summers. Uh, he wrote a, a, an excellent book on vampires called The Vampires, Kith and Kin, which just happens to be the text for one of the classes that I teach. Um, but he, he spends a, a couple of paragraphs in that book linking vampires specifically 
to that that event, uh, the creation, uh, or rather the birth of those unclean spirits uh, by way of the uh, the deluge. I think that, uh, and I think analogously, I think that you can you can make the same argument for these other kinds of monstrosities, including the werewolf. I think what you're saying there makes a lot of sense when you talk about you know it. It specifically talks about um, uh, the the giants, you know, drinking the blood of their enemies or drinking blood of of the those people. And then you look sp- specifically through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you can't count how many. Well, you can, but you can't count how many times God says, "Do not drink the blood." You know, do not drink the blood. Do not eat anything that right. still has the life blood in it. So there obviously is some kind of connection there um, when you see that. But kind of. I guess going a little further and, and kind of piggybacking on that, when we look at things like the, the Apkalu or the, the Anunnaki or, or um, uh, other things of that nature, um, Quetzalcoatl, right? When we talk about uh, the fiery serpent, right, the, the, from the Central America. When you look at these things, especially in Egypt, when you look at the Anunnaki and you look at, or you look at the, the gods like Horus and, and Anubis, I mean, you have the head of a dog already on a person, you know, do you believe these were those crosses of that genetic DNA that we're seeing, or were they just representations? Like trying to imitate, even when you go to, like, I'm reading a book now called uh, uh, The Myths of Babylon, and it goes through all the, the Sumerian myths and stuff like that. It talks about, you know, Tiamat and all these monstrosities that she birthed and stuff. I mean, this is something that all the, the, the peoples and cultures of, of that time we're, we're all talking about i thought that was just kind of fascinating the correlations with that mm-hmm. yeah well uh, in the case of of uh, of of most mythologies and and certainly the ones in the ancient near east and the mediterranean basin uh these sort of theriomorphic features animal features that you find conglomerated you know with humans are are pretty common um and so i think that that perhaps not in all cases but in many cases these are representations of things that 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 actually existed and people experienced in real space and time um one of one of the thing one of the the things that you notice very quickly about the post-flood civilizations which most scholars still treat as the first civilizations like the Sumerians, the Egyptians, the Rapids. We now know that that's, they weren't the first civilizations. We actually have old, older sites like Gobekli Tepe and Tel Caramel and Natufian Jericho and Chateau Hayuk and, and Karahan Tepe. And the list just goes on and on and on. You know, these are ancient, you know, prehistoric city states. And so in the reboot, uh states ba- city states basically in the the respective empires um basically the earliest phases of any civilization the what you have is a kind of theocratic monarchy uh and they believed that uh that their rulers were gods or emissaries of the gods on the on earth and they were typically despotic and tyrannical, an absolutist. I believe this is a system that's set up in the pre-flood world 
that reboots in the post flood world, whether that's however, however people want to paint it, however they think that um, these giant tribes reemerge in the post flood world, whether it was a second incursion of fallen angels or otherwise, it's kind of a secondary consideration. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that it happened. And uh, quite literally, the earliest rulers of these post-flood civilizations that most scholars treat as the first civilizations uh, probably were these chimerical uh, creatures in some cases. Uh, they were at least part of the populations uh, or the hierarchies of these early civilizations. Uh, so quite literally, these were the god kings and that those traditions remain uh, intact in certainly in the ancient Near East and in the later class, uh, classical archaic world of the Mediterranean. But if you look at the, uh, uh, for instance, Mesopotamian mythology, uh, the Amorite Babylonians worshipped uh, these their gods in another world. That's where they believed that they were. And the Apsu, that's where we get the word abyss from. It was this watery underworld uh, and in later traditions like the ugaritic tradition of the phoenicians uh this cult is the cult of the ancestor god kings and the underworld is well attested and in in the amorite tradition the akkadian tradition the word that's used there is rabba uh, for these dead god god kings and Rapa in the Ugaritic, and it is both of those words are are in the same language family as the word Rephaim uh, in the Hebrew Bible. So we're talking about the the same kinds of in, in, entities that were well known in the ancient world and probably probably corporeal entities. They were ruling over the earliest phases of these these civilizations, and then those traditions continued. Um, and it's not just Mesopotamia; it was the pharaohs of, of ancient Egypt. It was the uh, Hellenic uh, survived in the form of the Hellenic um, uh, ruler cults in the Greek East, and uh, the emperor cult in in Rome. Uh, the deification of their rulers, uh, what was called the the genius in Latin, not a brilliant meaning not a brilliant person, but the genius being a, a, a kind of spiritual element that the Romans believed in and the person's makeup. Uh, and so the residue of those practices and the, the, the memory uh, of those theriomorphic uh, entities uh, remained ensconced in the collective uh, cultural memories of those peoples that lived in that part of the world. And indeed, as you point out, in other parts of the world as well. And feeding off that, and that's something I wanted to ask you specifically, was you can look at, say, Gobekli Tepe, right? And you have the images of those uh, godlike things carrying like a, it's like a bucket or something. I've, I've, I've heard, uh, uh, I think yeah. it's Aaron Judkins and um, Graham Hancock mm -hmm. talks about it. And then mm -hmm. you see this in Central America, and the, and the images look mm -hmm. almost identical. Now, mm -hmm. When you see the same creature or whatever you want to, you know, God that you want to call it, and then you see them carrying the same item that looks just like a little bucket mm -hmm. or a little purse or something of that nature, and then you see them even pointing mm -hmm. in the same direction. 
and the images are almost verbatim from you know yeah. eight thousand nine thousand miles away difference mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. but when you see that now is that was that a you know this is post flood you know this is this is um is well is this is it was this an attempt uh, of the those same if you think go back to the tower of babel i'm sorry i got ahead of myself mm-hmm. i gotta back it up here mm-hmm. uh, go back to tower of babel they said you know that god said he had to come down and separate that because they said, if they accomplish this nothing for them will be impossible right mm-hmm. that's what it says there in that verse so if they go through was this an attempt of those those deities after to try to reunite everybody back together into that one culture back to try to be able to I guess, take on God, for lack of a better word? Well, uh, just to qualify what I, my answer, it, it's not just post-flood, it's pre-flood, too, because Gobekli Tepe is oh, pre-flood. That's, yeah, that's true. You're right. Mm-hmm. But the imagery is stark, and so far as, as its continuity is attested in monuments all, all over the in disparate parts of the world. Um, because, uh, as in the case of, you know, let's take Mesopotamia, for instance, it's the Apkalu that are carrying these bags, right? Um, the analog for that in the Hebrew tradition, of course, is the Watchers. Uh, in uh, other accounts, uh, in, say for, for instance, in the Greek tradition, uh, it's the Titans. Specifically, it's a, a cabal of Titans, including Titans like Prometheus and uh, uh, Atlas. You know, Prometheus is famous for, what does he do? He gives fire, which was the symbol for civilization, to humanity. So those that, you know, whatever we want to call it, bag or satchel or, or whatever, clearly has something to do with this knowledge that's being offered that lays the groundwork for this, this kind of model, which ultimately is a mockery of the system that God sets up. God has a kingdom, right? Whereas Yahweh is the good, just, um, uh, uh, compassionate ruler. The de- what does the demonic do? It flips everything on its end. And so the, the system that we end up with on the earth that's been the rule rather than the exception for most of human history has been this, this autocratic, despotic, wicked, wicked at its root, at its satanic, root, satanic system. system. Are you trying to find a way to afford your favorite Bible scholar's next book? Are you searching for the next biblical research book to fill your shelves? Then if you want to justify a $35 plus shipping and handling expense to your spouse, look for savings on your home and auto insurance at the Better Insurance Agency. We can evaluate your insurance rates with multiple carriers to find you the best deal with the best coverage. Because if history has shown us anything, it's that the biblical narrative is real and that you'd better have a good excuse for your spouse on not on getting yet another book by Dr. Judd Burton. So choose the Better Insurance Agency and visit us at www.thebetterquote.com today. Um, and it continues to pervade today because it's so deeply ensconced in things like language. It's hard to separate ideas from language. And you mentioned the Tower of Babel a minute ago, not not to get too drawn off on a rabbit trail, but if you look at 
see, I, I think that we're looking at the Tower of Babel in the wrong. I look, we're looking for that in the wrong place. It's not. It's not necessarily the Babylon that we would think about in terms of you know, let's say the the fourth millennium on. I think we're looking for something that would be more in the halal or ubayid phase of mesopotamia and that brings you further and further north um and of course there was this region between eastern turkey and the transcaucasus uh where people think that that most of the uh most of the languages spoken in europe and asia originally sprang from and this language that 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 linguists have kind of reverse engineered, and you read about if people want to read about it, they can they can look. I highly recommend J.P. Mallory's In Search of the Indo-Europeans. But linguists call this this mother tongue Proto-Indo-European, and so there's literally, you know, the farther back we go, close to the flood, that that first phase after the flood, we we literally did speak dialects and pigeons of the same language group and in, in my estimation just looking at it anthropologically and linguistically i think what we're looking at is if we can trace back that original point where the proto-indo-european language shift begins and i, I include the proto-semitic world with that because proto-semitic world the proto-semitic language world bordered directly with the the proto-indo-european heartland which is kind of the transcaucasus region between the black sea and the caspian sea but if we can find that point i think i think if we can chart that chronologically and find that point i think that's where we're going to find the tower of babel event uh let's go i'm ready pack yeah. our bags yeah you know this is the dig bible podcast and so it's a it's kind of a linguistic archaeology I, I, key tools in in unraveling that mystery and i think we've been looking too late for characters like nimrod and and the tower of babel event i think we have to push that timeline back much earlier into the the early post-flood world uh and specifically within either within the halal or the Ubayid time frame. Um, would that a lot put, of people don't. Yeah, go ahead. Would that put it with that that in in correlation with that and Merker and the the letters to the Lord Arata, you know, thinking that that was potentially Noah uh, uh, from mm -hmm. Gilgamesh writing him, and that would have been pretty soon after the flood. Then, uh, precisely, yeah, and um, you know, there's been a a lot of scholarship done, you know, link linking. Uh, Gilgamesh to the identity of Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod's roots, if we're to follow his his line back from Cain through Arphaxad, that's all. Uh, that's all in that 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 southern southeastern Turkey region. So we have to go further back, and I think we have to go farther north in Mesopotamia to begin to understand that event. Yeah, because even the boat landed in Mount Ararat, you know, and you're getting all those, That's right. all those uh, epics and myths and stuff, even with the Gilgamesh mm -hmm. and the creation account, you know, he uh, goes to the mountains up north, mm -hmm. you know, he's talking about Ararat, mm -hmm. to go find Utnapishtim, right. you know, and I, yeah, I believe that was Noah. Yeah. 
I just, I, like I said, I just yep, recently I got too. that book. I've been diving into that stuff. I think it's just fascinating. Uh, I, I think it's inordinately fascinating. And, and biblical prehistory is uh, one of my midterm goals with the Institute is actually to create an entire program in biblical prehistory. Um, because I, I think there's so much coming down the pike in terms of new discoveries that looking at it through the biblical lens using these anthropological models that I've been using for the last 10 or 12 years, I, I think is going to yield some interesting results. And I, I'm, I, I feel like I'm just starting to peel the onion back. And it's like any good movie, you know, if you want to know how, how the ending works out, you got to know the beginning real well. That's right. And it's a heck of a movie. Oh yeah, yes sir. <laughs> I'm the best it. director. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as far as like the werewolves, and what's funny is uh, I was going through and uh, studying, and I come across uh, Daniel four. You mm-hmm. know, in verse thirty-two, you know, this is where Daniel is talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, God mm-hmm. gives out His judgment. You know, and here, you know, I'll just read this quote. It says, "And you shall be driven from among men." And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made mm-hmm. to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom that he wills. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven out from among the men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were as long as bird's claws." Mm-hmm. To me, you know, you know, I knew we was about to have our conversation. You know, at first when I read that, I was like, oh, he just went mad. You know, he went crazy. Mm-hmm. But then, then I'm like, well, I mean, is is could this be some, some werewolf type thing popping through here? Mm-hmm. What's your opinion on yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, I think so. You know, there have been a number of people that have written about Nebuchadnezzar's transformation, and some people say that it's, werewolfism other other people say that it's a kind of uh um boanthropy you know changing into uh uh oxen um so there there's definitely varied scholarship on the subject um what i think is interesting here is is maybe by comparison looking at at nimrod's situation you know we're, we're told in genesis that nimrod becomes a gibberim a, a a mighty one, a mighty hunter, more accurate translation is probably mighty hunter in the face of or against the Lord rather than a mighty hunter of the Lord. Uh, clearly, there's some sort of change that takes place. In other words, um, Nimrod is not born a Gibberim, but he's changed into something. So there's some process uh, brought about by some working of knowledge or ritual or something in like manner i i think something similar is is at least temporarily happening to nebuchadnezzar as a means of judgment um, uh, because of his previous transgressions um what that creature looked like to my mind it, it is reminiscent of a wolf uh simply because of the, the description that's given uh, i've used it myself in any number of discussions as, as an example of this along with other ancient examples uh like uh uh king lucan of uh, uh arcadia the story about the 
the Greek king uh, who transforms, uh, who's transformed into a, a wolf man, a wolf uh, by Zeus, which is where consequently we get the word lycanth from. Like, um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think what you're looking at here is this sort of chimerical uh, in Nimr in uh, excuse me in Nebuchadnezzar's case a chimerical sort of a change, uh, but in in Nimrod Nimrod seems to have retained his his hominid um, uh, morphology, if you will, uh, but clearly Nebuchadnezzar is taking on attributes of some sort of a beast of the field. Now, now in the in the in the reference to to. Nimrod, if we're going to make the Gilgamesh connection, and we go down that road mm -hmm. in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and you talk about Enkidu, and mm -hmm. and that he was uh, he lived yeah. with the wild animals, and he was a kind of a right. hairy, crazy. He was, he was, yeah, he was covered in hair, covered yeah. in hair, and he comes, you know, with this, and uh, granted, it is after he fights with uh, Gilgamesh, but they become best friends, and is that because right. potentially maybe because they both had maybe similar attributes or maybe had that, that, um, lycanthropal, I don't even, how you say that? How'd you say that word? Lycanthropal. <laughs> had them um, attributes. Well, uh, he, uh, he certainly had, uh, uh, yeah, like, like, lycanthropy is, uh, usually the word that's used to describe a kind of mania. Um, that people once associated with becoming a werewolf. Um, but yeah, that the prefix there, Lycan, comes from the Greek king Lycan that I mentioned in the story. Uh, but yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, in a lot of ways, Gilgamesh and Enkidu are, are different sides of the same coin. Um, Gilgamesh is two thirds divine, according to the story. And he is kind of a a progenitor of um, civilization. He's the the king of the city state of Uruk, uh, which is is mentioned in the Bible as Erech. It was the Hebrew name. Uh, we actually know that there was a historical Gilgamesh. He was on the the uh, Sumerian kings list, and his tomb was discovered in two thousand and three. Uh, on the eve of the invasion of Iraq, I might add. Uh, coincidence, I'm sure. But, yeah, I'm sure it's a coincidence, absolutely. <laughs> DARPA don't know nothing about that. <laughs> Not, nothing, nothing. Uh, but, yeah, I, going with this idea that Gilgamesh and Enkidu are kind of opposite sides of the same coin, uh, Gilgamesh represents the city-state and the civilizing high-tech, and Enkidu represents the more brutish animalistic side of this kind of wickedness well i think it's um, funny too it's like Di but, even disney you know i mean what I, when i see this and and mm -hmm. i think about you know the beast the beauty and the beast mm -hmm. you know the prince turns into mm -hmm. the beast and uh as punishment. yeah as punishment and has to you know it was a witch wasn't a witch cursed him or something like that but even with esau and I, i'm gonna throw this at you I, I threw it at trey smith he he uh he kind of laughed at me but it was like, uh, when I read Esau, I, it just stands out to me. It's like it said, you know, in Genesis 25, 25, that he was born covered in hair like a cloak and was red. You know, and then when you get into the book of Jasher, it says that him and Nimrod met in the field and, and did battle. 
you know, and that he, you know, slew Nimrod. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I just kind of just threw out like, a, you know, well, what if? I'm like, well, you know, when some whoever tells the story tells it favor, favorably to their side. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. could it be that maybe this inky do, you know, could have correlated w- with Esau? They battled out mm-hmm. and ended up being friends or something, you know? Just, you know, just a postulation, but. My my take on that, and I, I did a video on that a couple of years ago. My take on that personally is that um, Esau wasn't a, a, a chimera, chimera of some kind, but um, I'm not lionizing the guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he must have been a pretty capable guy, and God picked him out. I think it makes perfect sense that he he actually was in a place to kill Nimrod. And I think that it happened directly before he returns to camp to sell his birthright to um, his brother. And I think there's more to that than just saying, okay, you're head of the tribe. Um, You can you can have that. I think he actually got the garments yes. that I, and, and again, if people want to, people want to do that, want to look more into this. I did a video on this very subject on my YouTube channel. Um, I think he actually got the garments that Adam and Eve, uh, wore, uh, that were taken from them, uh, and pa- probably passed down to Nimrod. Um, that's what made him so go more. that's what I think. That's potentially what made him a giverine. That's right. Uh, that's def- that's a that's a plausibility in my mind. Um, and so I think that 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 was actually taken back by Esau, and that probably has a lot to do with the fact that he was he was still blessed by God in the remainder of his life. Um, but that that token, if you will, of the head of you know the patriarch of the tribe went to his brother uh and was then passed along um uh the video at the end i offer up a kind of speculation that that you know potentially this may have had something to do with you know if it was a token a symbol of authority then perhaps it had something to do with uh you know, Joseph's coat of many colors, perhaps the fabric itself was, was actually woven into it somehow. Uh, now, again, that's so much speculation right now. I'm not planting a flag on that, that academic hill by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, I think that's one of the questions that, that needs to be asked, you know, going forward with, with that problem. But that, that whole encounter between Esau and Nimrod uh, seems to me to be pretty plausible. Um, yeah. Just so you know, we've we've been down this rabbit hole before. Justin's brought this up as, as a pretty interesting idea, and we're okay mm-hmm. looking into the, uh, you know, really looking into the what could have happened. But as long right. as we say it in that regard and know, you know, obviously we hold the scripture as the as the truth, but we love right. digging into that and finding out all those little pathways and how could this fit in and where does this puzzle piece go? And it just, I think it exactly. helps you understand everything so much better. Well, and we can have, you know, we can have a discussion about this kind of stuff and not be on the same page. It's, we're not talking about a salvific issue here. 
Well, what's interesting about the whole giant Nephilim question is that, you know, it's sort of hiding in plain sight all throughout the Old Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, it's also kind of hiding in plain sight because the encounter with demons, whether it's Jesus or the disciples, uh, the inner circle or the, you know, the extended disciples or the apostles, they're all engaging the residue spirits of these Nephilim. And then it becomes a more, not a salvific issue, but it then becomes a more, a more central issue to actually understanding the narrative of the biblical text, actually understanding why it's important to know about that stuff, uh, to, to, to try and dig a little bit deeper. Because if Jesus spent half of his ministry dealing with people who were oppressed and, and possessed by demons, and we're starting to know now by examining the language more closely that these demons were likely the the disembodied spirits of the nephilim well that gives us other clues as to you know their behavior and whatnot if jesus was so concerned about them we'd probably better understand a little bit more about this giant thing that runs all throughout the narrative of the bible amen know that enemy yeah and see what i think is yeah. crazy too is we just spoke with uh, doug van dorn on his book on the angel yeah. of the lord and then yeah, so the, uh, excellent work. Yeah, excellent work. Yes. And where you see all the, you know, the appearances, you know, it, throughout the Old Testament. So then it, mm-hmm. it answers the question, well, that's how these uh, demons knew who Jesus was and was begging for his mercy. Please don't throw us out into mm-hmm. the abyss because they knew who he was because he went before the people in Israel as the angel of the Lord that's and right. fought and slain these guys. He's the reason why that's they're right. disembodied. <laughs> right, exactly. It's just amazing. Exactly. Yeah, that would be pretty terrifying too if I was. Uh... Yeah, not again. Yeah, <laughs> not this guy again. <laughs> well, and even even the way that Jesus, you know, dispatches some of them, um, you know, like the uh, the uh, gathering demoniac, you know, with all the all of the uh, uh, the demons being. Uh, uh, you know they what do they do they they rush right into uh, a herd of pigs right mm-hmm. the first occurrence of deviled ham in history by the way <laughs> deviled ham <laughs> and they they where do they go the abyss the abyss they they plunge into into the lake right into the deep so there's that that symbol of the watery abyss so even in that that act right there it was like you know this is just this is to remind you of what happened the first time and the and the the punishment that's coming for you as well. And the fact that they said that they knew, they said, have you come back before our time? So he, exactly. I mean, that's yep. just, that's, it's powerful stuff when you see that. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, and this is the thing, and this is kind of what we always talk about a, a lot on here. And, and Judd, you've helped me a lot with this and a lot of the stuff that I've li- uh, listened and watched you on and, I have to always say Derek Gilbert has been a, an amazing influence and some of these guys, Michael Heiser has been an amazing influence, but mm-hmm. now, and this to me, it, I've always been a Christian, but this is really the last, you know, year has between getting into this really deep and then listening to you guys and, and then digging in for ourselves and finding so much. And th- this is the hard part. And this is what we tell people a lot of times too, is, you know, you can't just go to church and listen. You can't just 
Yeah. Watch YouTube. You know, as much as I love you, Judd, if I went and just got my scripture from you, that's not enough. I need to dig into the Bible right. myself. And, exactly. And we have to be in God's word. And but you guys, you have helped me read that Bible in such a different way where I understand it now that I did not understand, but I would skim right over a verse. And now I read it and I'm like, Whoa, I never saw that before. That's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And, and doesn't it make you, uh, it changes the way that you look at how you engage with the rest of humanity, you know, and then it, and then the salvific stuff also begins to make more sense to you there because you're like, Oh man, to me, it, it just, it expands the kind of cross-like compassion that you're supposed to have for your fellow man anyway. Your overall spiritual understanding. And it's, understanding the giants too, I think, I uh, hate to interrupt you. No, uh, good, but, you're going. But it's like uh, the atheist, number one thing they try to use against you. You know, they're, oh, well, how does a loving God bring a flood and destroy all of humanity? How does a loving mm-hmm. God tell his people to kill every single man, woman, and child? Well, the answer is the Nephilim giants. And if you don't have that, you're missing a very key component to, to knowing God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and the same logic applies to the, the during the conquest era, you know, the cities that, that God had Joshua and the Israelites, you know, take out, you know, in many cases down to the last man, woman, and child. Well, that just sounds like some jealous desert God, you know, going after these poor people, but they don't. You know, if number one, the reference to the giant enclaves in the Levant at the time are rarely brought into that discussion. And secondly, it defies this materialism that has so infected the colleges, universities, and seminaries uh, that you have this sort of lopsided view of, of history. Uh, and that's, that's dangerous. Well, Judd, I have to say, like I told you, we were going to jump all over the place and we did. (laughs) We did. We did. We, uh, I like pulling stuff back to scripture all the time. Obviously that's the point of our show is to show those, those, um, you know, the, the rabbit trails that we take, but that we can always bring that back to scripture. What's right, wrong, where some things came from, where they, you know, and we use all those apocryphal books. We use the some of the Sumerian, Babylonian, these, these other, you know, the Talmud, some other things like that, where we pull that stuff in, as to to back up what we're what we're seeing in the Bible. But it always goes back to the Bible. And I mean, we got to say thank you so much for coming on, Judd. We've we've loved having you. But what the, I I have extremely <laughs> looked forward to this for a long time. And I, I'm being very honest, Judd. I I really love your work. And I really look forward to um, getting in and taking a couple of your courses. But uh, I would like you to go ahead and tell everybody where they can find your your books and where they can uh, kind of follow you on YouTube, anything like that. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, um, I'm in like I'm in the process of revamping websites and stuff like that right now. But you can you can check out the the, the new look for the Institute of Biblical Anthropology at drjudburton.com. It's D R J U D D b-u-r-t-o-n.com and uh people can get some info for classes there uh i'm also on youtube facebook twitter uh i'm looking at other platforms too i'm also on gab and kind of want to move some of my stuff to rumble so it's kind of a a a work in progress right now as i revamp and and look at the future uh but people can get get my books at lulu 
Amazon.com. Uh, I've got a page there. I'm in the process of getting stuff over to Amazon too. Uh, so there'll be a number, a number of platforms that people can purchase books from and um, lots coming down the pike. Uh, really excited about that. And uh, if you need to get in contact with me, you can certainly email me at professorburton at yahoo.com. Thank you, gentlemen, for the opportunity. I, I enjoyed it. Oh, I'm going to bother you again, I promise. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> promise. please do. Because uh, I was talking to the guys that I'd like to in the future uh, look at some of these uh, old Sumerian epics and stuff like that and really like dive yeah. into them like a study. I, I think you'd be perfect for that if you'd grace, grace us with your presence on that one. I, I'd love to. It'd be my pleasure. That'd be a lot of fun. Well, in all seriousness, Judd, thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I think uh, we should really uh, dive into the, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the in the creation accounts and all that kind of stuff. That'd be really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. The NMLE. Yes. Yeah. Let's do it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, all right, buddy. Thank you very much. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Godspeed gentlemen. Thank, thank you. you too, my friend. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the dig Bible podcast. We thank you for listening to the dig Bible podcast, questions, comments, or future episode ideas. We'd love to hear from you at the dig four, two, three at gmail.com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at The Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. You gotta dig.